in your Bibles or on your iPad or whatever you've got, open your Bible to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the hinge point in the Gospel of Mark this morning, which is the transition from the first half to the second half of the book. And uh, so this will be our last sermon in Mark until January. Uh, and so, yeah, so this will be the last one in Mark until January. And so uh, if, you're, if you're new or if you're visiting, uh, what we're doing is we're walking through a series in the Gospel of Mark in which we're calling it Learning the Ropes, in which Jesus is teaching his disciples what ministry or life following him looks like. And so he's teaching them what, like, what does ministry look like? What does it look like to follow him? What does it look like to be like him? And, uh, and so now we're coming to a point in which all these people have been asking the question of who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Like trying to figure him out. And he's, he, Jesus is finally at a point to where he's going to ask the people, okay, who do you say that I am? Uh, before we get there, uh, Disney Plus came out this week or last week, okay? Some of us are very, David and I is very happy about Disney Plus. I feel you, dude. We got it too. We got Disney Plus as well. Uh, so, but on Disney, this is, this is a movie back from when I was a kid, okay? There's a movie called Hercules, all right? So if you're a little kid, you're all gone now at this point. But Hercules, okay, it was an awesome movie uh, in which this dude who is half man, half God, uh, his father was Zeus, his mother was not Hera? I, I, I'm iffy on that, okay? It's, I don't know. But anyway, so uh, he comes and, and he, he comes and he makes a friend uh, who's training him, and his name was Phil. Phil is a half man, half goat. He lives on Goat Island in Lake Worth. And, but Phil, he is modeled after the Greek god Pan. And so if you remember in the, in the movie, he's, he's half, like he's a, ma- a balding man up top. Looks by about 50 or so, but he looks just like he's aged further than that. And uh, his bottom half is a goat. And he's always chasing these girls around, but before he catches them, they always like just get away at the last second by turning into butterflies or something like that. Those are called nymphs, okay? Well, there were people back in history who worshipped that dude. And we're going to see the people here. They're in a town called Caesarea Philippi. There was a Greek guy. There was a Greek kind of God is what he was. He was actually a terrible guy. Uh, so look at, look at Mark chapter 8. Starting in verse 27 is where we're going to be starting. And, uh, and so Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Let's pray before we get into God's word together. So this morning, uh, Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you. Uh, for the blessing of your word, and that you've given it and revealed it to us, and you've, you've given us the spirit to open our hearts and open our minds to understand what you're saying to us. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. God, I pray that you would speak through me and allow us to, uh, to hear from you, from your word. And, uh, and so we pray, pray for that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So they have moved out of, out of the Jewish area. So if you notice, most of the time, what we've like up to this point in Mark, they've been circling around the Sea of Galilee, which was in the northern part of Israel. And, uh, and so they were circling around the Sea of Galilee, always going from one side to the other, trying to get away from the crowds. Well, now Jesus is really trying to get away from the crowds. And so they head up to Caesarea Philippi, 
which is not a Jewish area. It's a Greek area. And so they're heading up there. And let me tell you a little bit of background about this city. So they're in the villages. They're in the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, uh, in like the, the suburbs, really. But back then, suburbs weren't an area for money. That's where you went if you didn't have money. If you had money, you lived in the city, inside, protected by the city walls. Uh, but that's where they're at. They're hanging out in the suburbs of Caesarea Philippi. But here's what's happening in that city. Here's culturally where they're at. That city was a really, really pretty area in which there was a natural spring coming out of some mountains there. Well, in one of the mountains, there's a really deep, cool cave. And so back in the past, some people had dedicated that cave to the Greek god Pan. So most Greek gods or most gods in that in, in Greek culture had temples. Except for Pan, he didn't have temples because he was the god of nature, the god of wilderness, the god of sheep and shepherds, that kind of stuff. So it didn't make sense for him to have like a really proper temple. It made sense for the worship of this kind of god, the god of nature and the god of wilderness, to have his center of worship to be in nature, into things like caves. And, uh, and so that's, what, that's why this cave here in Caesarea Philippi became associated with Pan, because it was just like a wilderness, cavey thing, okay? So people would go there, and they would throw offerings or sacrifices into the deep cave, hoping to get something from Pan. I don't know what they wanted from him. But outside of this cave, there were actually niches carved into the mountainside. It was Kind of cool if you look at pictures of it. It's really pretty airy. It's kind of cool. But what they would do is they would put idols in those niches that are related to Pan. So they would put an idol of his father or an idol of a, of a nymph called Echo. Um, and, uh, and, so, uh, and so she was a, a, like a, just a girl that Pan was always with. Okay, it's just don't ask questions about it. But uh, that's just happening there. So but Pan himself was awful, okay? He was, inc- like, the stories about Pan were just, he's not a good dude, or he wasn't a good god, little cheek. I don't know if he's, uh, whatever. You get what I'm saying. He was incredibly lustful, always chased after the nymphs, always chased after women. Uh, he's just, his history's not good, okay? He's, he's, he's you know, he's a little uh, assaultish. And so, uh, so that's, that's this dude, okay? That is, like, this area, and so, uh, and so that's the background for what's happening, happening here. Apologetics side, side note about this. You know what's interesting about many of the Greek gods or Roman gods or gods like little g gods that people worship today is that there's something distinct about our God that we worship. Here's why. Most of the gods that people make up, people make up to worship, look a lot like us. And the same for Pan. Because if you look at the, the, at the Greek gods that all these people worshipped, all of these gods had infighting, they had anger issues, they neglected one another, they neglected their family, they had family issues, they, uh, they, they didn't care for people, they, you didn't know whether they loved you or didn't like you, and it depended on the day of how, what their mood was. And you notice those gods look a lot like us. But here's what I want you to catch in this. It's just a little side note, is that our God is different. Even contemporary gods, like gods that people worship today, like Allah. He is fundamentally different from our God in that Allah is like us. Think about this. Our God is wholly different than us in that he is holy. He requires a sacrifice. He is so holy, he requires a sacrifice in order to forgive people for their sins. Allah doesn't. 
Allah is not holy enough to require a sacrifice for sins. If you ask a Muslim, well, how can, how can Allah forgive you? And it's like, he just, he's able to forgive. Like, yeah, he's able to do that because that's the way that we react. That's the way that we work in the world. That we think we can forgive people just by just doing it out of us. But you know why we can do that? Because we're not holy like God. We don't have to defend our holiness by forgiving someone else through killing something. But our God does. And so our God is fundamentally different. So just as a side note, like you can trust our faith. You can trust our God that he's not something made up like these other little G gods because he's not something we would make up because he is holy. He's wholly different than us and wholly different than all these other little G gods that people would follow in the past. I just want you to just to hear that because this guy was really prominent uh, in my mind of thinking, man, that's a terrible guy to worship. I don't want to follow that guy. I don't want to look like that guy. And, uh, but I want to look like my God. You know. Anyway, so going back to the text. So that is what's happening here. Jesus is up there, and there is this, there's this culture of pan worship in the background behind him. But then all of the Gospel of Mark leading to this point has been the question of, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so there's this question of, in the midst of all of this idol worship behind him, and all of these people, these Jews, asking, trying to figure out who this guy is. Do we worship this guy? Do we follow this guy? What do we do here? Jesus gets his, his, his disciples away by themselves to teach them and the, to start this conversation about who he really is. And so look what he says. Look in, look in verse 27. And Jesus went out with his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And this is really important because this is the turning point or this, the center point in the gospel of Mark because everything leading to this point has been Jesus like doing ministry, healing people, getting, like somewhat getting a name out there, but telling people, always saying, hey, don't tell anyone I healed you. Don't tell anyone I healed you. Don't tell anyone I healed you. He doesn't want people to associate him with the term Messiah because the term Messiah for Jews was loaded. It meant a lot to them. They had all these preconceived notions of what he, this guy was going to be. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to associate me with what you think I'm, what the Messiah is going to do. That's why he always calls himself the Son of Man, because it's an intentionally confusing term. He can set the rules for what someone believes about the Son of Man. And so he's coming in here, and he's saying, hey, who do the people say that I am? And after this conversation, the whole tone of his ministry and his outlook on the world is going to change because everything is set towards Jerusalem and going towards the cross. And so here he's saying, who do the people say that I am? And so here's what he's doing. He knows his ministry is about to shift. He knows opposition towards him is about to mount. And he wants his disciples on the same page with him. And so that's what, this is that, what that conversation is. And so he says, who do the people say that I am? Look at verse 28. And look what their response is. They answered him, John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. And so others say, you're one of the prophets. And these are common Jewish expectations or, or like thoughts about like who this guy is. Because they're thinking back in their history, who is supposed to come to us and who has God always sent to us? And we know Jesus is significant. We know there's something unique about him. We just don't know exactly how to like quantify exactly who he is. And so they're saying, maybe he's John the Baptist and just 
somehow back from the dead? Maybe, I don't know. Or some people are saying, maybe he's Elijah because there was an expectation of Malachi that Elijah was going to return. And they're like, maybe he's Elijah. Or maybe he's just another prophet who's come because over the course of their history, God has always sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to them to try to lead them to follow God. And they're like, maybe this is what he is. And so they're, they're, what they're saying is people are trying to figure him out. People are thinking about this, trying to figure out who is this guy, what is he doing here, what is his mission here, and they don't really know. But look at this all-important question that Jesus asks in verse 29. But he turns to his disciples and he says, but you, he asks them, who do you say that I am? This is the most crucial question in the Gospel of Mark. Because for his disciples, he's putting it point blank and saying, what you think about me is vitally important. What you think about me is life or death. And it's going to set the tone for how they follow him or, or, or what happens from this point on in the rest of the book. And he says, what do you say? These other people have all these ideas about who I am, and the question is, what do you believe? And so for us today, we have the same thing. The same question is, is asked to every person. It's just, this is the most important question in the world. Is who do you say that Jesus is? And culturally, here in the Bible Belt, we have a lot of ideas or expectations for who Jesus really is. And, uh, and so for, for some of us, uh, he's a good teacher. Like I, I was talking to a guy a couple weeks ago, and he was like, I just think he was a good teacher. He was before his time, you know, and he was like this. I was like, okay. He's, if that's the case, then he was a crazy guy because he called himself God. You don't follow people or say, you know what, David Koresh, you know, the guy blew himself up in Waco, said uh, he was the new Messiah. Like, you don't follow that guy and say, I think he's a good teacher. No. Like, you say, no, he's insane. Get away from him. He'll blow you up, okay? So that's, that's what you do with people who call themselves God. You, you get away from them. But Jesus is saying that. So you can't just say, oh, yeah, he's a good teacher. Another thing, we say he's a social, he's kind of social revolutionary, or he, he is, uh, he's about social justice. Like, and that's the sum of who Jesus is. And so if you, what Jesus really cares about are, are rights and about sex trafficking and he cares, he, this is what he cares about. He cares about racial equality, and he cares about these things. Let me tell you this. Those are deeply important issues, but those are not the sum of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Those are, those are miseries here on earth, but ultimately they're temporary. And what Jesus came to do is something, yes, to, to, to work in this world and create good, to be a light in the world and lead us to be lights in the world. But those are not the sum of who Jesus is. That's not the sum of his mission. But there's other things we do. Because if you listen to country music often, you can associate Jesus with like the big man upstairs. You know, the guy that you, like, culturally, you'll just say, hey, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus and support the troops. You know, that kind of thing. Like, that's what, that's what a lot of country music is about, right? And, and so we kind of have this culture, if you kind of just say you love him, and then you say you follow him, and you listen to a country song occasionally, that's kind of, you're good, okay? And then, the, so we have these, these other ideas, or there's another one with common in, in, in many rights groups, or just with people my age today, is that Jesus just, is just love, and he loves everyone. He's a judgment-free zone. And, uh, and so that's where Jesus is at. That's not just Jesus here. And so what, what we have these many responses. And the question for us, 
the question for us is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you, who do you believe Jesus is? And that's what he asks his disciples. And look what Peter says. And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And that's the correct answer. But that was a loaded term for them, remember? And so they didn't always totally get exactly what that meant. But Jesus kind of moves on and he says this. He strictly warns them again not to tell anyone. He says he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. That's what he's saying here. As he said, that term is loaded, you're correct, but that term is loaded, and so I don't want you to use it anymore. And in fact, there's only one, one other time in the book when it's used. And so, uh, and so that's what he said. But, but, but sometimes, sometimes you can get at the right answer, but not totally fully understand what that means. So let me show you something. I'm going to show you a picture. Jocelyn, these are up there. I put, uh, okay, so this picture... Most of you know what it is if you're not familiar. This is called a sonogram, okay? This is not, this is not a birth announcement. Dara's not pregnant, don't worry. Um, but this is from one of her pregnancies. Now, if you look in the middle, there's the big circle, but that's not the main point. The main point of this picture is where that red circle is. Because if you look at that little red circle, Inside of that is an air pocket, or what we believed was an air pocket. So when we were first looking at this sonogram, we're thinking, okay, baby, we're good. But you know what we didn't realize at that moment? What this picture actually meant, because we didn't pay attention to what was inside that red circle, because that's actually the focal point of this. Because here's the next picture we saw when we went to the the next ultrasound. And if you're unfamiliar with this, this is not a, a weird guy hugging you, okay? This is, those are from uh, the first sonogram we saw when we found out we were having triplets. And so sometimes you can get the right answer in knowing that someone is pregnant or knowing, knowing a situation, but if you don't have context, if you don't have other information, background information, then you may not know fully what's going on. And so for, 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 for Peter here, He says, you are the Messiah, but for him, he's looking at that first sonogram picture because he sees, he sees baby, he sees this is what's going on here, I know exactly what's happening here, but all of a sudden, Jesus is wanting to take him and give him a wider context to allow him to understand what exactly is going on here. And so Jesus moves down, and look at verse 31, here's what he says. And then he began to teach them, that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed, and to rise after three days. And he says he spoke openly about this. Now, this is confusing, because if you thought the Messiah was supposed to come, here's what the expectation of the Messiah was. The Messiah was going to come. He's going to be a political ruler. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to lead Israel to have its own state. And then, and then he was going to lead the people to follow God. And that's like what he was. He's going to be like a military ruler is what he was. But then to have that guy who you just, he just says, who do you say that I am? And, he's, and you say, oh, you're the Messiah. And he's like, you're right. They're going to kill me. You're like, no. What? Like, that's confusing. 
It's confusing to them. You're supposed to lead, not die. And so there's a shift for Jesus in that. He's beginning to speak openly about them, but uh, openly about this. But then I want you to look at this. Look what Peter does. I, I love this so much. Look what Peter does. Then Peter grabs Jesus. Now, Peter's 20, 21, 20, somewhere in there. He grabs Jesus, and he pulls him to the side, and he starts to rebuke him. He's, he's got the Messiah in front of him, who's just claimed to be the Messiah. And the Messiah says, they're going to kill me. He pulls him to the side and tries to be his teacher and starts getting on to him for saying that he's going to let people kill him. There, here is, this is the most perfect quote ever. This is from a guy named Aaron Pardue, a pastor in Angleton. I love this so much. He says this, and it's, this is usually about people like uh, having dealing with uh, issues in their life. He says, well, sometimes well-meaning people say well-meaning things that are dumb. And that is firmly where Peter's at here, okay? So he's taking Jesus to the side. But if you can imagine, if you and I are in this situation here, and we've got the Messiahs here, and we've been following him, like we're like number one, like we're his right-hand man, and he, we've been following him, watching him heal all these people, and like we're getting all amped, like it's the Messiah, he's coming, he's gonna, we're going to kick out the Romans, and like, but like he's going to do it. Like we're, we're not going to get killed because we're going to be with the, with, the, with, the, with the Messiah. It's going to be awesome. And then all of a sudden he says, by the way, like, saddle up, boys, I'm the Messiah. Let's get going. By the way, I'm going to die, okay? That's not the guy. Like, that's confusing. And so for him, like, if we're in that situation, we're probably thinking the same thing of, like, why would you say that? And so he pulls him aside and tries to get on to him. But then look at Jesus. Turns, into, turns this into a teaching moment. Total dad move here. Turns, he turns around. He's off to the side with Peter. He turns around to all the other disciples, the 11 over there, and probably the other people who are with him. I don't know if there's anyone else there. He looks around at them and gets on to Peter in a way to where all of them can understand. That's what he's doing here. And so he's, he tells Peter, he rebukes Peter, or he turns around looking at his disciples and rebukes Peter and says this, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, that seems harsh. A little. But sometimes it's good to remember that Jesus is not as fluffy as we think. And he turns to Peter and he's, he calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because at this point, Peter's concerns align with Satan's and not with God's. Because if you remember, if, you, if you're not familiar, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And, Ma and Mark says it a little bit, but really Matthew verse, uh, chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 1 through 11. It's not going to be on the screen, but it, um, but it says, spells this out of, of what, what all Satan tempted Jesus with. And the whole temptation was about Jesus giving up like, like giving up the cross, giving up the way of ministry, giving up the way of hardship, and taking his kingdom now, and not through death, but through force. That was Satan's temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. 
And all of a sudden here, where, where Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to go to the cross, Peter comes to him and says the exact same thing. He says, don't, don't take your cross, don't take your kingdom through, the, through death. Take it through force. And, and he turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And so Peter knew who Jesus was, but he didn't know what that meant. He knew he was the Messiah, but he didn't know what being the Messiah went, meant. And so you can arrive at the right answer and still not truly understand what it means. And so look at verse 31. This is what being the Messiah means. It's necessary for the Son of, he's back to the Son of Man term, right? Because the Son of Man, he can set the rules for it. So he's back to being called the Son of Man. It's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, to be killed, and to rise after three days. That is what being the Messiah is ent- entails. But, but Isaiah 53 says this same thing, but it gives us a little bit more description of why this is the case. This was a prophecy written, written long before Jesus ever lived about him and his death. That's what Isaiah 53 is, and it gives us context for why this death is going to take place. And so this will be on the screen, but if you want to turn there, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, which is what Dean read for us. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God. You notice it was by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, and we all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Here's summarized. Here's what that just said. Is that this serve, this suffering servant was going to come and was going to die in the place of people who rebelled against God and sinned against him. And so because God is holy, he has to, he has to take his wrath out against our sin in, on something in order to guard his holiness and for order for him to be just. And so he took it out on this one who is to come, and now all of a sudden Jesus is here, and he's saying, that's me. Being the Messiah is not what you think it is. It's not about power. It's not about building a crowd. It's about dying. It's about giving up yourself. It's about serving others more than you serve yourself and ultimately giving up your life for them. And that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. That is God's concern. Human concerns, for us, we're all about power, status. We want people to notice us. We want to live forever so we have these cryomeric chain, whatever, however you say the word, the, the chambers that you, like, you put your dead body in to seal it in freezing temperatures, and then one day, hopefully, science can bring your brain back and whatever else. Like, we want to live forever. Like, we want, like, power. We want kingdoms. And Jesus is saying, no, being the Messiah is the opposite. Being the Messiah is to come here and to give up your life for others. And that's our, that's our God. 
Those are God's concerns. And ultimately, hear this. God's concern is for your good. It's for your good. Peter doesn't understand this in the moment because he thinks power. He thinks authority. He thinks take kingdom by force. And that's what he's thinking. But what, but what Jesus is trying to teach him is that actually this death is for your good. God is holy for you to heal your heart, to bring peace, to lead us to love him as he loves us. And for that, I'm very glad that Jesus rebuked Peter here. Because through his death, where he's heading at this point, his eyes are focused solely on the cross in Jerusalem from this point on. And from him heading there brings us life, brings me life. And so now, as the God who came to die for us, here's what he calls us to do. Look at verse 34, and we'll be done. And calling the crowd with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, you notice the transition in Jesus's ministry here. We haven't seen any, any statements like this up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. There's a transition happening here to where he gets way more severe about what following him actually looks like. He says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Here's what we just said, is that if you truly want to follow me, then you're going to die along with me. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And so in Jesus' death, all of a sudden, for those who believe in him and who desire to follow him with their life, becomes the example for all who would follow him. And so the point is not to believe him and then die. The point is to die to yourself, to pick up your cross and say, I'm going to live for someone other than me. I'm going to serve someone other than me. If my wife is desperate for me to help with the kids, I'm going to turn off the cowboys. That's difficult, but that is dying to yourself. Like, we always think, like, Okay, I'm going to love my wife like Christ loved the church. I'll take the bullet for her. You know, I'll do that. Like, we think of manly William Wallace type stuff. Like, yeah, like, that's me. That's what I want to do. But when it comes to turning off the Aggies, I don't know about that. That's too far. You know, and so, and so that, that's, that's what Jesus is saying this. He's saying, <laughs> it was for you, Rick. But anyway, so, but he's saying, he's saying, I want you to follow me. If you want to follow me, then die to yourself and live for someone other than you, and be like Jesus. And, and he knows that we won't do this perfectly. Hence, that's the reason he came to die for us. He knew we wouldn't live it perfectly. But upon our belief in him, we, are ga- we gain the Holy Spirit who empowers us and encourages us to live for Jesus and become more like him. And so progressively over your life, God wants you to become more and more selfless, just like Jesus. And that's what he's calling us to do. And so the question for you is, have you died recently? That's the question. And so let me pray, and we'll be done. So, Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your word. And we thank you for sending Jesus for us and making it clear what he is meaning when he says he's the Messiah, to where we would be people who would be devoted to follow him. Because we know that his work on the cross is for our good, and that looking more and more like him would bring us ultimate joy. And so I pray, God, I pray that you capture our hearts with that. 
God, allow us just this week to be empowered by the Spirit to live for you, to be people who would be selfless, to work in the world and among our families, and, 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 and to, to be people who, who would die to ourselves and to our preferences and to our needs and to our desires in order to lift up you and lift up your name and glorify you, which would ultimately bring us the most joy. And so we pray for that, God. I pray that for us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so if you are here and you have never met,